Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Now, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol Jr. USA Gymnastics officials agreed to provide what Larry Nasser's attorney called false excuses for his absence from major gymnastics events in 2015 rather than disclose to parents and gymnasts that he was under investigation for child sexual abuse. Emails obtained by the Indianapolis Star revealed that on two separate occasions, Nasser and a USA Gymnastics attorney negotiated cover stories. First, that Nasser was sick. No kidding and later that he was focusing on his private practice to explain why the longtime team physician was not attending two major events in the run-up to the 2016 Olympic Games. In one of the emails, Indianapolis attorney Scott Himsel told Nasser his medical techniques were under investigation, and it is in everyone's best interest that he not attend a gym- gymnastics event that weekend. Himsel said USG, USA Gymnastics would tell people Nasser was not attending for personal reasons. Nasser replied, can we just say I'm sick? That would make more sense to everyone. Would that be okay? Hinsel agreed to have USA Gymnastics use that story. In later emails, part of more than 900 pages of documents reviewed by the Indianapolis Star, Nasser assured Hinsel, I stayed with the story of that. I am nauseated, not feeling well, and staying home. And he asked if USA Gymnastics officials would explain his absence from another event by saying Nasser was focusing on his private practice. Again, Hinsel agreed to have the organization do so. It has long been known that USA Gymnastics withheld concerns about Nasser from its members, but the emails along with interviews revealed for the first time that the sport's national governing body was not only willing to remain silent after reporting Nasser, but agreed to participate in one of his many deceptions beforehand. At least partly as a result of such discretion, Nasser's reputation as one of the world's foremost experts on the treatment of gymnastics-related injuries remained intact for 14 months after he was reported to the FBI. During that time, he was not added to the organization's list of people banned from the sport. At least 14 more women and girls say they were sexually assaulted after June 2015 when USA Gymnastics received what it said was his first complaint, its first complaint, about Nasser. Daylon Pyeongchang, the last ski racers, have shushed down the slopes of the Yongsun Alpine Center in South Korea, but for environmentalists concerned about the future of its sacred forest, The real competition is just beginning. After February's Winter Olympics, the $190 million investment to build an alpine race course to international standards for 16 days of competition is about to turn to a much more lengthy task, restoration, this according to Reuters. Under pressure from green groups, and after deciding it was economically unviable to turn the area into a permanent ski resort, Gangwon Province is set to tear down the gondola and replant trees. All that in an effort to return the 5,118-foot mountain to its original state, including replanting tens of thousands of trees at a cost of $44 million. The problem is the province is prepared to pay just a fraction of what's needed, and national government will not provide any funding. That has sparked fears that the Pyeongchang Games will leave a sordid environmental legacy. (laughs) 
But wait, there's more. Olympic swimmer Ariana Cooker Smith has sued USA Swimming, alleging the sport's national governing body knew her former coach sexually abused her as a minor and covered it up. The Olympics, it's a movement, and we all need one. Every day. Hello, welcome to the show.
from New Orleans, Louisiana, about which more in a moment. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the land of 15,000 princes. freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is seeking to enrich its own uranium, prompting fears of a nuclear arms race in the Middle East after President Trump (laughs) withdrew from the Iran deal. Riyadh says it wants to make nuclear fuel to diversify its energy sources. But recent public warnings from Saudi leaders about acquiring a nuclear bomb have raised doubts about their commitment to nonproliferation as the uh, Iran thing teeters. It's teetering. Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman warned during a trip to the U.S. uh, a couple months ago that if Iran developed a nuclear bomb, his country would follow suit as soon as possible. That warning was repeated by his foreign minister a couple weeks ago after Trump withdrew from the Iran deal. And Saudi Arabia has released three veteran women's rights activists who were among a group arrested last week, a month before the ban on women driving is supposed to end. This according to Reuters again. International rights watchdogs have reported the detention of as many as 11 activists, mostly women who previously campaigned for the right to drive and an end to the kingdom's male guardianship system, which requires women to obtain the consent of a male relative for major decisions. You know, which color burqa to wear. The government announced last week that seven people had been arrested for suspicious contacts with foreign entities and offering financial support to enemies overseas and said other suspects were being sought. It did not name the detainees. The terms of release for the three who've been campaigning since 1990 to lift the driving ban were unclear. They won't be driving home, we know that. Their names had not appeared in local media reports that denounced some of the other detainees as traitors. Everybody's throwing that around these days. Activists and diplomats speculate the new wave of arrests may be to appease conservative elements opposed to the social reforms, or it may be a message to activists not to push demands out of sync with the government's own agenda. Don't, don't be too reformist now. Don't be, don't be doing that. Don't be getting too reformy on, a, on us. Land of 15,000 princes, ladies and gentlemen, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to present Let Us Try, a ballad of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Let us try to stem the tide to beautify our countryside. We offer you our hand Let us try Well, they're trying now. They're really trying. Two different reviews of the New Orleans levy system by the Army Corps of Engineers. Let us try is, of course, the motto of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. These two new reviews raise troubling questions, according to the Times-Picayune in New Orleans, about the ability of much of the system to withstand surges caused by a major storm nearly 13 years after the 2005 flood, where you think things have gotten better. As a matter of fact, in the Atlantic, there's currently uh, an article by a reputable local geographer which describes the new system since Katrina as improved. These new reviews, though, 
questioned the ability of local levy districts to keep up with costly maintenance between storms as required for everybody here to be, remain eligible for the National Flood Insurance Program. One review completed in 2011 gave the 350-mile levy system the second-worst classification, urgent, unsafe, or potentially unsafe, in the CORE's classification system. That was preliminary because post-Katrina improvements were a year away from being declared finished. The classification remains accurate to this date. This date is 2018. That's according to a CORE New Orleans spokesman. The documents indicate New Orleans' levy system is well-designed, For a storm surge with a 1% chance of occurring in any given year, the so-called 100-year event. That's because that's the highest standard it was designed to protect against. The reason for that is because the city was in a quite understandable hurry to try to encourage residents after the flood to return. They needed to assure residents they would be protected by the flood insurance program and the 1 in 100-year protection is the minimum required for an area to qualify for flood insurance. The poor standing, though, according to the Times-Picayune, reflects a stark reality. Much of the metro area's population is at risk of levy failures during the stronger, less frequent storm, 200-year events or stronger. That's what uh, the storm in 2005 Katrina has ended up being classified as. Such a disaster could kill nearly 1,000 people if storm surge overtopped Levies, the Corps estimates, and almost 3,000 if those levies broke before being overtopped, as happened in 2005. The classification names used by the Corps to assess levy risk have been changed since the initial ranking, so New Orleans' system is now ranked as, quote, high risk, unquote. The reasons for the rankings and the recommendations for local levy systems remain the same. The name's not the same. We can, we can fix the name. The rankings have been discussed internally within the Corps. Well, that's a relief. And with local levy officials, but not have been talked about in public, lest we get angry. In March, the Corps issued a long-awaited levy portfolio report that said the ranking is always now shared with local sponsors as part of an ongoing dialogue about the factors that contribute most to risk of levy breach and what is at stake. The earlier ranking was included in documents that were part of a presentation to risk planners in the Netherlands in which a Corps of Engineers consequence specialist. They didn't talk about that at career day in high school, did they? You could be a consequence specialist for the Army. Jason Needham explained that the low ranking for the New Orleans levy system uh, is caused by the combination of life, economic or environmental consequences with the probability of inundation due to overtopping with subsequent breach and that is very high. Unquote Needham. Bad rating was caused by the potential threat of even stronger storms that could occur less often. There's a 14% chance of a 200-year event occurring in the lifetime of a 30-year mortgage. Studies, uh, storms of that magnitude or higher would make a breach in the levy system likely, said Needham's presentation, which would in- increase consequences. Breach in levy system. That's the, what the levy system that's just been built at a cost of $14 billion was designed to not repeat, ladies and gentlemen. Scientists have concluded uh, oh, that the, the uh, Katrina surge at the Mississippi Gulf Coast was a 400-year event, while the surge in Lake Bourne that reached New Orleans was a 200 to 250-year event. The uh, ranking that deems the levees unsafe was done when the new system was nearly complete, including an understanding of new resilience improvements. 
The report did not specifically say if New Orleans was among the 80% of high-risk systems threatened by a breach before overtopping, but in t- determining the level of risk, the Corps looks at people and critical infrastructure. Well, that's nice of them, since, uh, as we learned in the making of The Big Uneasy, the Corps' margin of safety for rural dams was much higher than for urban levee systems. We don't know if that's been fixed. According to the 2016 and 2017 inspections, the most recent available, all the levee system segments on the east and west banks were ranked minimally acceptable. That's the middle category among three rankings. When the Times-Picayune filed a federal freedom of information request with the Corps for the inspection reports on which the rankings were based, Corps officials turned down the request. It's not, it's not as transparent as we thought, and we didn't. The uh, annual ranking sheets, however, were obtained by levies.org, a local organization, and they provide an overview of inspection reports dating back to 2001. In that year, four years before Katrina, all parts of the levy system, that is before the 2005 flood, were ranked by the Corps as outstanding based on a visual review of maintenance issues. That was the best possible rank at that time. And also, as we learned in 2005, kind of not true. In 2003, 2004, and 2005, all levy segments were rated as uh, as acceptable. There were no rankings for 2002. Go have lunch. A year-long lunch. Within the individual inspection reports each year, the Corps warned the regional levy authorities, these are the local partners, so-called, who take over the system after the Corps builds it. The Corps builds it and says, you maintain it. You figure out a way. You figure out a way to to afford it. The Corps warned the regional levy authorities that repeated minimally acceptable rankings could threaten the area's insurance eligibility. And as I pointed out, that's the reason this whole thing happened this way. And what does the uh, minimally acceptable description mean in the um, eyes of the Corps of Engineers? According to... uh, a core spokesman, it shouldn't be a cause of concern. We know we've built a great system. It's one of the best systems in the country, if not the world, says core spokesman Ricky Boyette. In the world, ladies and gentlemen. Just so Ricky knows, flood management, water management systems in the Netherlands, you've heard of the Netherlands, Ricky, they're built to a standard to withstand a 1 in 10,000 year event. But I guess that's not part of the world. We also know that, according to Ricky Voyette of the Corps, inevitably there will be a storm that's greater than what that system is designed, and we have to take that into account. But improvements are in the works. And the Corps representatives tell a local TV station, Fox 8, they're still working to improve the classification system and should have a final system in place in several months. Imagine those meetings. Can't can't fix the... Uh, the uh, Levy system, but we can fix the classification system. Oh, sure. Done deal. Just a few months more. Let us try, ladies and gentlemen. Copyright feature of this program. Now, news of inspectors general. And this is the latest from the special inspector general on Afghanistan reconstruction. The SIGAR is the acronym, S-I-G-A-R, for this particular organization. And... Um, 
Here's what he's got to say. Between 2001, oh, this this particular report deals with uh, the U.S. experience in trying to stabilize, stabilization in Afghanistan. So here we go. Between 2001 and 2017, U.S. government efforts to stabilize insecure and contested areas in Afghanistan mostly failed. Let that sink in for a moment. Sinking? Thinking, not sinking. The U.S. government overestimated its ability to build and reform government institutions as part of the stabilization strategy. They focused on troop numbers and their geographical priorities and mostly omitted concerns about the Afghan government's capacity and performance. Under immense pressure to quickly stabilize insecure districts, U.S. government agencies spent far too much money far too quickly in a country woefully unprepared to absorb it. Opportunities for corruption and elite capture abounded, making many of those projects more harmful than helpful. On the ground in Afghanistan, the Department of State, Defense, and U.S. uh, aid implemented programs without sufficient knowledge of the local institutions. That never happened before. Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam. uh, Or the sociopolitical dynamics and government structures of the area. We keep doing that. Because we know local schmokel. You know what I mean? Local rhymes with yokel, doesn't it? Power brokers and predatory government officials with access to coalition projects became kings with patronage to sell, fueling conflicts between and among communities. Afghans who were marginalized through this competition found natural allies in the Taliban. During the 2009 Afghanistan strategy reviews, President Obama and his civilian and military team set in motion a series of events that fostered unrealistic expectations of what could be achieved They also ensured the U.S. government's strategy would not succeed, first with the rapid surge and then the rapid transition. The surge and the desurge and the surge and the desurge and the surge and the defense. By prioritizing prioritizing the country's most dangerous districts, the coalition was generally unable to properly clear, secure, and stabilize those areas. As a result, the coalition couldn't make sufficient progress to convince Afghans in those or other districts that the government could protect them if they openly turned against the Taliban. Civilian agencies were compelled to establish stabilization programs in fiercely contested areas that weren't ready for them. Here's one. Here's one to ponder. Once the Department of Defense deemed money a weapon system in 2009, the Obama Department of Defense declared money a weapon system. Once that happened, commanders were often judged on the amount of money they spent with insufficient attention to impact and a frequent assumption that more money spent would translate into more progress. These projects sometimes exacerbated the very problems commanders hoped to address. And by the way, that's just our money. Spending continued even as stabilization had become a dirty word at USAID associated with excessive and ineffective spending at the military's behest. Afghan forces and civil servants were generally unwilling, unprepared, or unable to carry forward the momentum created by coalition forces and civilians, particularly on the unrealistic timeline defined by the coalition. We got to get out. Get, get, get on. We got to go. When the promise of improved services raised expectations and failed to materialize, Afghans who saw more of their government through stabilization projects actually developed less favorable impressions of it, of their government, 
perhaps a worse outcome than if the government had not reached into their lives at all. The effort to legitimize the government was still quoting from the inspector general. The effort to legitimize the government was undermined when the very Afghans brought in to lead the efforts themselves became sources of instability as repellent as, if not more repellent than, the Taliban. Most practitioners we spoke to in the inspector general's office believe that stabilization rarely brought communities closer to stability than merely providing reliable and non-predatory security would have. News of the inspectors general. Just let that, you know, sinking in. Sinking in. Just for a moment. Let it, let it just, you know, it, you need to get into the skin. It just can't cover the skin. News of inspector generals. Inspectors general, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. <laughs> A Portland, Oregon couple received a phone call from one of the husband's employees earlier this month telling them she had just received a recording of them talking privately in their home. Unplug your Alexa devices right now, the staffer told the couple. You're being hacked. The employee, over 100 miles away in Seattle, confirmed the leak by revealing the pair had just been talking about their hardwood floors. The recording had been sent from the couple's Alexa-powered Echo to the employee's phone, who was in the husband's contacts list. She forwarded the audio to the wife, who was amazed to hear herself talking about their floors. Suffice to say, the episode was unexpected. The couple had not instructed Alexa to uh, do any such thing, to spill a copy of their conversation to someone else. This is from the British tech journal, The Register. I felt invaded, the wife told a local TV station. A total privacy invasion. Immediately they said, I'm never plugging that device in again because I can't trust it. There will be more trust issues to come shortly. But the couple then went around their home, unplugging all their Amazon Alexa gadgets. They had them all over the house to manage various smart home devices, including a thermostat and security system, and then called Amazon to complain about the snooping tech. Amazon confirmed it was the voice-activated digital assistant that had recorded and sent the file to a virtual stranger, no, a real stranger, and apologized profusely but gave no explanation for how it may have happened. The wife said she'd asked for a refund for all their Alexa devices, something Amazon so far has not done. The machines are constantly are designed to constantly listen out for the wake word, Alexa, Alexa, turn, on, turn the radio up. This is important. Alexa? Filling a one-second audio buffer from its microphone at all times in anticipation of a command. Alexa, I'm talking to you. When the wake word is detected in the buffer, it records what is said until there's a gap in the conversation and sends the audio to Amazon to transcribe, figure out what needs to be done, and respond to it. A spokesperson for Amazon has been in touch with more details from their point of view. The device misheard its wake-up word, Oh, Alexa, while overhearing the couple's private chat, started processing talk of word floorings as commands, and it all went downhill from there. Oh, Alexa, stop it. 
It's such a smart house. From New Orleans, this is the show. And I, now it's, I guess, it, time to uh, turn to uh, the week involving <laughs> President Trump. Um, well, it's on again and off again with the uh, putative summit in Singapore between the United States and North Korea, originally scheduled for June 12th. June 12th, that's right around... The- um, <laughs> president sent a uh, letter. He sent a letter. Not to his local DJ, to uh, the president of North Korea, saying the thing is off on Friday, on Thursday, but then on Friday, uh, maybe it's on. Maybe it's on. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I think that's going to be on uh, 
Trump's tombstone, his epitaph. We'll see what happens. Um, Again, reports this week. um, Maybe this is the second time this has happened. Maybe it's only the second time it's been reported happening. But the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Kristen Nielsen, who was uh, John Kelly's deputy uh, at that agency before he decamped to become President Trump, <laughs> President Trump's chief of staff. She has been uh, berated by the president, uh, <laughs> president at least twice in cabinet meetings, just undressed verbally for not getting the border thing done. Uh, she continues to insist that uh, she's loving her job, um, but and testified before Congress this week that uh, things are moving, but they just need more money for that wall. Call Mexico, will you? Mike Pompeo is the new Secretary of State, as you probably know. He was the former head of the CIA, which uh, would have put him in the middle of Spygate, or at least knowing about Spygate, which is the pres- <laughs> president's word for the fact that an informant had approached an FBI informant name uh, supplied on request. We're not supposed to name him, but NBC and several newspapers did, and he's still alive as far as I know, Uh, had approached uh, a couple of members of the Trump Trump campaign in the fall of 2016, offering his services as a China expert. Now, a lot of reporting uh, has... uh, said he had interactions with Trump campaign members. In fact, as far as is able to be determined, he offered his own services as a China expert to the team. They were not take, they didn't take him up on it. Uh, Trump has interpreted this as embedding a spy uh, and, and you know, with his genius for branding, now calls this Spygate and all of his minions do as well including Rudy Giuliani on the Morning Yak shows. But uh, as I say, Mike Mike Pompeo is, uh, maybe he's running the negotiations with North Korea. Maybe he's just tamping down Spygate. It's hard to tell. And there is the matter of the First Lady. She was last seen in public two weeks ago. After that, she uh, checked into the, the, uh, I guess it would be Walter Reed, hospital for um, a kidney procedure. That is to say, a procedure on her kidney. I don't think her kidney performed a procedure. A kidney procedure after which she has been uh, unseen in public ever since. It's it's hard to all weave it to weave it all together. But let's try. This week, for the first time, the gloves don't just come off. They throw themselves away. And for the businessman turned chief executive, the teams grow ever smaller. But do they grow better? Christian. Yes, sir. You got that J in there. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, I don't have the whole cabinet in here today. I noticed, sir. Not because I'm being nice to you, by the way. It's just not cabinet day in the format, okay? Yes, sir. That doesn't mean I'm happy with what you've been doing at the border. We are making progress in getting to the point where... Already too many words. The only words that tell me you're doing a great job are... I don't know, sir. What are they? What a freaking disappointment you are to your entire team 
and to General John Kelly, who I told not to recommend you to me. <laughs> the words are, I'm doing a great job. Okay, got it. Not too hard, right? Well, from my standpoint, Mr. Trump, I find it a little vague in terms of uh, keeping you fully informed on how my department is doing. Okay, I can tell you this. I like vague. Vague is, 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 is like the Vaseline they put on the lens before shooting my close-ups, right? Who wouldn't want that? Well, I'd say that a uh, little Vaseline in the right place never hurts. See, I, I, I see something in you I like, despite the thing. <laughs> so here's the deal. You know what this organization stands for, right? Being tough on immigration, right? The wall, right? Yes, sir, and if I didn't believe in the values of this organization, I wouldn't... You wouldn't have been recommended by General Kelly, which, again, just to remind you, is the only reason you're here. I'm very grateful to General Kelly, even now. Okay. I don't want to do this scene again in front of the whole cabinet. They tell me that was humiliating. For you. I don't think you want to be humiliated again. Unless I misread you, which... No, sir. I don't enjoy being humiliated. Okay. Forget I ever mentioned it. Which, really, I didn't. Okay, Kirsten, your task for this week is to really get tough on immigration. Do something big. Make the base notice. Can you do that? Well, we sure can get a task force together, and... Is that a yes? Yes. And that yes, that you just said, is... It's a yes about the other yes. Terrific. So, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm still getting used to calling you that. I mean, it used to be the guy who's the head of the part of the deep state that won't even return my phone calls, right? Well, <laughs> it had always been protocol, that the, aside from the daily brief. Which I'm sure I tried to tell you back then. I, you know, you didn't pick up the phone. Well, I could listen to about the first three minutes of that brief and then, gah, you know what I mean? <laughs> Too much detail. Too much everything. You know, when I was in the hotel business, I kept track of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But they didn't tell me how many times each guest got up in the middle of the night to take a damn whiz. <laughs> well, now, all that is behind us now, sir. Great point. It's a really great point. Yeah. So, Mike, how are we doing in this North Korea project? You bringing it home? <laughs> Mr. Trump, I think we're making enormous progress thanks to your policy of good cop, bad cop, with you being both cops. Good. But tell me how you think you're doing. Well, personally, I think the progress I'm making with our North Korean counterparts is all due to your brilliance and reading Kim and your ability to send him conflicting messages within the same news cycle, thus keeping him and his advisors guessing. Uh, that's a space in which I'm able to work, and I'm, I'm very grateful to you for. Hey, 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 look, I'm here to evaluate your, con your, your, your contribution to the team. You don't have to... But if I may, sir... There are many ways you can discover with your own eyes or ears how I'm doing. But with all this noise and witchgate, is that what we're calling it now? Well, and everything, it's very hard for you to get back to the core truth of how very good you are at this. If I'm doing well, and I think I am, it's because of you. Mm -hmm. Does that mean if you're not doing well, that's because of me? No. Because if, if, if so... No, no, no. If I'm not doing well, with the great head start you're giving me, sir, Mr. Trump, that's my fault. Okay, here's your story. I think you're right. Oh, thanks. Your task for this week is to get a new date for the Singapore summit. Surprise the hell out of everybody again. Can you do it? Well, with your firm and determined leadership, sir, of course I can. And 
let's keep the element of surprise going. It's terrific. So no leaking about this, right? Even for me. Mr. Trump, mm -hmm. as we used to say back at my old job, I'm not even here now. Melania. Yes, dear. How's it going in the East Wing? Oh, a little slow. Slow's good. You have to heal. The doctor says I am healed. <laughs> you have to heal not doctor good, but first lady good. You got a lot on your plate, and it's a big golden plate. You got all these initiatives you set up. I see about them all the time on TV. And I should be attending some of these functions. It would be a big help to my initiatives, to your administration, to Baron, who's getting sick of my company, to me. You know what's a big help to you? Hmm? Seriously. Staying off TV for just a little while. You know, everybody's saying to me, Mr. President, while all this is going on and the Spygate thing, mm -hmm. the Korea thing, mm -hmm. you know, all the things. Mm -hmm. Your administration needs to speak with one voice. One voice, they say. You're out there on TV. That's another voice, right? Dan, I'm not competing with you for air time. Look, I know a little bit about this. There's only so much time between commercials. It's like beachfront property. They're not making any more of it. So, your task this week? Yes. Is to stay inside with our son and whoever and just continue your terrific healing from the thing. Can you do it? I don't really have a choice, do I? That's the spirit. New team, new tasks, same mission. We're going to make cable TV great again. Now, the world is his boardroom. The Presidentus. This week, it's not just for news junkies anymore. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Oh, there's so much sorrow going on. Hard to know where to start. Let me uh, dig in right here. A German chocolate maker has apologized after it shared an image of a chocolate-covered marshmallow in a wedding dress to celebrate Meghan Markle's marriage to Prince Harry. Super Dickman's Facebook post carried the caption, What are you looking at? Wouldn't you also want to be Meghan today? The company came under fire for making a statement that some social media users derided as racist. Company spokesperson admitted the post was in poor taste, calling it stupid and embarrassing, according to the BBC. Super Dickmans insisted it was oblivious to the image's racial undertones or overtones. A big pardon. The world of Super Dickmans is colorful and diverse and far from racist thoughts, the company said, according to reports. The controversial cartoon has been removed from the company's social media channels. After spending four days defending his fake apology for the LDS Church's past racial ban as satire, former Mormon Jonathan Streeter issued his own apology. I caused tremendous pain for black Mormons who have patiently waited for so long, he wrote in a letter to the Salt Lake Tribune. I am deeply sorry. A member of the grassroots black LDS Legacy Committee noted that the prankster did not, to her knowledge, offer his contrition personally to black Mormons. They were the ones who were barred from the Utah-based faith's all-male priesthood and its temples from the mid-1800s until 1978 when the prohibition ended. Streeter, who lives in Texas, launched his deception on the day that the church executives 
and the executives from the NAACP issued historic and real statements about working together to promote racial harmony. The hoaxer posted a document from his, on his website that purported to be from the church's governing false presidency, saying, I offer a full, unqualified apology for the error of racism which was taught from this office. Streeter said he initiated the ruse as a way to start a conversation. How about, looks like rain today. That always works. A top official at State University of New York's Upstate Medical University resigned this week in the wake of a Albany Times Union newspaper report on apparent fabrications in his professional biography. The story on the school's chief of staff, Sergio Garcia, revealed that a number of claims he made in a videotape speech last fall don't stand up to scrutiny. Among them, his account of being present at what he said was the 2011 bombing in Afghanistan that took the life of a young diplomat, that he'd been interviewed for State Department Post by Colin Powell, and that former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice remains his close friend and mentor. Garcia's account of the bombing, off by two years, it actually took place in 2013, months after he'd left Afghanistan for an academic post in Ohio, was refuted by witnesses who were there, and sources close to Powell and Rice shot down his assertions about them. In a statement provided to the Times Union, Garcia apologized for what he referred to as, quote, unintentional errors as I attempted to provide a lot of information in a short amount of time in my personal and professional journey in serving our country with honor and distinction. Unquote. He acknowledged he had not been in Afghanistan when the bombing occurred. But Brian Williams, oh no. In similar statements provided to another newspaper, Gar- Garcia refused to discuss his debunked claims about Powell and Rice. I will not discuss personal events or personal conversations, he said, despite having described them in detail in his speech last year. Well, that was enough. An allegation that a white Texas state trooper sexually assaulted a black woman last weekend in Waxahachie, Texas, went viral on social media, but after the Department of Public Safety published the full body cam video of the incident, the attorney for the woman, Lee Merritt, apologized online and said the trooper in question had been falsely accused. The uh, woman, Sherita Dixon Cole, was pulled over about 1.30 a.m. for a traffic violation, arrested on suspicion of DUI. During the stop, she alleged the officer offered her special treatment for sex, then sexually assaulted her. The allegations were amplified on social media and by a social activist and journalist who wrote that Cole had been kidnapped and raped in posts that were widely shared and retweeted from his Facebook and Twitter accounts. He has since deleted his social media posts about that incident. The full-body cam uh, video was nearly two hours and long, and it shows uh, nothing bad happened. I am truly sorry for any trouble these claims may have caused Officer Hubbard and his family, wrote the attorney for Cole. I take full responsibility for amplifying these claims to the point of national concern. Arrested Development's David Cross says he will unequivocally apologize to his fellow cast member Jessica Walter over comments made to the New York Times during a heated interview published Wednesday by the Times. Best place for the Times to publish it. Walter was brought to tears as she recalled being verbally harassed on set by Jeffrey Tambor. It happened as a part of a discussion in which the cast talked openly about the accusations of sexual misconduct against Tambor on the set of another show. Allegations which Tambor has denied. Jason Bateman and Tony Hale, other members of the cast, 
of Arrested Development apologized to Walter via Twitter for basically coming to Tambor's defense, and Cross said he will unequivocally apologize to Jessica. I'm sorry we behaved the way we behaved. I think what Jeffrey did was egregious, and there was a little bit of cruelty to it, which I have a real issue with. I'm not going to defend what Jeffrey did at all because I would never do that, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, Netflix has canceled an upcoming U.K. press tour for, the, for Arrested Development in the wake of the backlash. Well, those would be the apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there are um, a couple of, well, more than a couple. Uh, there's a, a welter of uh, advertising going on right now, um, which is in that kind of vein. We came here for the friends, and we got to know the friends of our friends. And then our old friends from middle school, this our from mom, Facebook, our ex, and our boss. And this from Wells Fargo. Over the years, we built on that trust. We always found the way. Until we lost it. But that isn't where the story And just like that, we felt a little less alone. But then something happened. We had to deal with spam, fixing what went wrong, making things right, and ending product sales goals for branch bankers. So from now on, Facebook will do more to keep you safe and protect your privacy. So we can all get back to what made Facebook good in the first place. Because earning back your trust is our greatest priority. It's a new day at Wells Fargo. And we all get a little closer. It's a lot like our first day. Wells Fargo. Established 1852. Re-established 2018. Uh, and, and there's also one from the uh, new president of Uber, which I will spare you from. But uh, it just seems that they seem to be singing from the same hymn book. Maybe they all need to just use the same commercial. You're important to us. You always have been. Your trust in us is what's allowed us to pay ourselves so very much. So anything that lessens that trust makes us sad and slightly less insanely wealthy. So, starting today, we're pledging to change, to start over, to make things right. When we cheated you before, we're sorry. The small fine we may have paid is not punishment enough. Neither is making this commercial, as much as it hurts us to do it. If we didn't cheat you before, but just used your data in ways you didn't expect and didn't want, we're sorry. We may not have even paid a fine, but that doesn't mean that we don't hurt a little inside where not even our tax lawyers can see. So starting now, we're changing. We still have the same core value we always had, making as much money off your trust as humanly possible. But we're going about it very differently. From now on, we're hands-on. We're taking steps big steps so you'll see us as a trusted friend not just a useful predator and we're taking out more of these ads every day not just to convince you that we've changed we're convincing us too because when you get right down to it our algorithms are people too after all saying we're sorry is just not enough we're really sorry so please, like us again.
and its fingers shone. That's not the way it was back then, back when he was born. A vision wide and grand has become pig's eyes Admiring chills have been replaced with waves of weary sighs When we no longer follow You can't reach that distant it was belief forever Now it's faith no more Faith no more Disappeared Waking from A slumber deep Only when The smoke had Inside until you lift the lid. 
Words were never sung, apparently. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations that were in uh, uh, on your audio device of choice, is what I meant to say. And uh, it'd be just like seeing Melania again, if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you? Already, thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile in Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Garrett Pittman here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast or podcast the email address for this program playlist of the music you hear here your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts just by buying them all at harryshearer.com and I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. Derek Smalls is on Twitter at Smalls Life your choice or follow them both got all the time in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, the show comes to you from Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station, the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans. <laughs>